0: Anyway, we are very happy to welcome Dr. Rebecca Seer from the um, London School of Economics to uh, give a talk today. Rebecca is a senior lecturer in population studies in the Department of Social Policy at the LSE. Um, she described herself as an evolutionary, evolutionary ecologist um, with particular interest in evolutionary demography i.e. interpreting patterns of demographic behavior using evolutionary theory. Um, She is a co-founder and a vice president of the European Human Behavior and Evolution Association, and also a council member for the uh, British Society for Population Studies. Um, So, um, has done a lot of very interesting work on the demographic topic in the past. Most of her stuff, uh, of her research, uh, comes from a longitudinal data set uh, from an agricultural community in the Gambia, uh, collected by the MRC. Um, she also uh, she has done work in Malawi and uh, in the UK as well. So I have the suspicions that it is around those data sets she's going to talk about, perhaps. But anyway, so Rebecca will talk for about 45 minutes and there will be occasion a chance for question and answer at the end. Thank
1: you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm going to be talking today about some research I've been doing over the last few years looking at the impact of kin on relatives on demographic outcomes, primarily child survival and female fertility rates. Before I tell you about the results that I've been coming to, I want to give you a little bit of background about why I'm interested in this particular topic. As uh, Wing said, um, I do evolutionary work. My background is actually in biology and biological anthropology, although I now teach demography at the LSE. So my work is uh, informed by an evolutionary framework. And if you take a biological perspective on human reproduction, which is what I aim to do, then you notice that women have a real problem. And this is that problem. (laughs) Children are a real problem for human women, if you take a comparative perspective to, comparative cross species perspective to human reproduction. So if you compare human reproduction with that of the other primate species, like those on the, the screen here, you'll notice that having children for women is a huge energetic burden. This is for a couple of reasons. Human children are dependent on adult carers for a very long period of time. It takes 18 or more years for a child to become a productive member of any kind of community. So that is, um, it takes at least 18 years before they have the size, the strength, or the skill to take part in the the, um, adult productive economy, whether that's hunter-gathering, whether that's an agricultural community, or whether it's being a, a university lecturer, or whatever it is we do in the West these days. This long period of dependency is very different to that that you see in other primates. So this is a gorilla mother with her infant. The infant is entirely dependent on on the mother while the infant is still breastfeeding for uh, a year uh, or a few years in other ape species. Once that infant is weaned, then the juvenile is entirely independent of the mother. The mother no longer has to care for that infant. The infant, the juvenile, is entirely capable of feeding itself. It may still associate with the mother because all primates, well, most primates are social living animals, but the mother no longer has the energetic burden of feeding that juvenile. It's the same in the other ape or primate species. Mothers look after one infant at a time. When their infant is weaned, they no longer have to care for their infant anymore. They can devote all of their attention to the subsequent infant, the next one that comes along. This is very different for human women. Because of this long period of childhood dependency, combined with the fact that we have relatively short interbirth intervals, In natural fertility societies, human interbirth intervals are something like uh, three to four years on average. Natural fertility means um, societies which don't use any kind of contraception. Amongst apes, for example, interbirth intervals tend to be quite a bit longer. They're four or five years in chimpanzees and gorillas, up to eight years in orangutans. So this combination of short interbirth intervals with the very long period of dependency of human children creates a huge problem for human women. Human mothers are responsible for several dependent children simultaneously, something you don't see in other primates. This causes a problem. And there must be some kind of solution to this problem. This stacking of offspring that our species does probably um, represents too much of a heavy burden for mothers to bear alone. They need to get help in raising their children from elsewhere. Now, one solution to this problem has been proposed to be men, fathers. Um, (coughs) Evolutionary anthropologists have argued, or some of them have argued for a long time now, that men are the solution to all women's problems, that it's (laughs) input from fathers that really solves this problem of the stacking of human offspring. So it's men provisioning children, not so much caring for children, but mainly um, uh, provisioning them with food and um, protection as well. Um, And that solves this problem of the stacking of human offspring. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail um, uh, into this at the moment, but more recently, it's been suggested that men are not the solution to women's problems, that even um, support from men is not enough to solve this problem of um, the huge energetic burden of care that human mothers have. Care uh, and support from men is also not sufficiently reliable enough um, for women to rely on it alone. So, More recently, it's been suggested that solution to this problem is cooperative breeding. That is, um, like the naked mole rat here, um, a cooperatively breeding mammal species. So women don't just receive help from fathers, they also get help from other members of their social group. So uh, child rearing is really a cooperative enterprise in our species. And Sarah Herdy is the anthropologist who's really been credited with um, uh, coming up with this hypothesis and pushing this hypothesis through. Cooperative breeding is seen in some other species. Um, technically, it's a social system in which members of the social group assist in rearing young that are not their own offspring. So breeding pairs get help from other individuals to raise offspring. This is most common amongst bird species. About nine percent of bird species are cooperative breeders, like um, these three species on the screen here. It's pretty unusual for mammals, but a handful of mammals do it. The only other primates that do it are tamarins and marmosets, these small South American monkeys. They also seem to be cooperative breeders. Now, if human women are getting help from members of their society, the question then becomes, who is helping women out? One possibility are women's older children. So older children um, are used to help mothers raise younger children. This is the system Um, which you see in most other cooperatively breeding species apart from humans. So in bird species, bird cooperatively breeding species, it's usually um, older juveniles who haven't yet dispersed to form their own nests who help their parents out to raise their younger offspring. And it's known in the ethnographic literature that siblings do do, uh, elder children do do quite a lot of work in many societies, either um, specifically childcare or also um, productive work, so helping out in the fields or um, whatever production system is being used. We are also quite unusual, humans are also quite unusual in that we also have this pool of post reproductive helpers who may help out. So these children may help out because they're pre reproductive, they don't yet have any children of their own, and therefore their labour can be used to help mothers raise younger children. We also have grandmothers, well, grandparents in general, but specifically grandmothers who are also not caring for their own children because they're post reproductive, who may also be able to help women out in raising their younger children. And it is also possible that some of this help does come from fathers and other men, though not entirely. So if we are adopting this cooperatively breeding strategy, um, then there should be some kind of empirical evidence that we are cooperative breeders, that women don't raise children alone, that they do get help from other members of their social group. And that's the programme of research that I've been conducting for the last few years, looking for empirical evidence that the presence of relatives does influence a woman's reproductive output, her reproductive success. And in this talk today, I'm going to talk first of all about a case study that I've done in The Gambia looking at the impact of kin on child survival specifically. And the rest of the talk will be some more recent work that I've done reviewing all of the literature that's out there on whether women do get help in raising their children um, from their relatives. Firstly, by looking at the impact of kin on child survival, and secondly, looking at the impact of kin on fertility rates. Okay, first of all, the case study of kin and child survival in The Gambia. So, I did this work a number of years ago, it actually formed part of my PhD work, Um, and the question I asked was, does the presence of relatives have a positive impact on child survival? So, do children survive better in the presence of certain relatives? And which of those relatives are most important? Uh, The data come from a field site in West Africa in the Gambia, that's um, a snapshot of the field site from uh, Google Earth, which is quite impressive. This is um, one of the villages uh, of the four in the study. It's um, an agricultural, subsistence agriculture village, and so it's a very traditional lifestyle. And the relatives that I looked at, if they had any impact on child survival, were fathers, grandparents, divided up into maternal and paternal, and grandmothers and grandfathers, Because of the sexual division of labour in the society, grandmothers and grandfathers may have different roles to play in a woman's life. Uh, Similarly, maternal and paternal relatives, that is the mother's relatives or the father's relatives, may also both have different abilities to care because of differences in residence patterns, but also differences in inclination to care for children. I also looked at the presence of uh, elder siblings um, on the child's survival. So it's an agricultural community The data that I used was actually collected um, up until 1975. It was collected between 1950 and 1975. So this is a historical data set when fertility and mortality were both quite high. Women had around seven children on average, but getting on for half of these children died before the age of five years. So this is a very high mortality society. Uh, No contraception was available during this time period and very little medical care as well, which is why mortality was so high. It's a very unusual data set, um, certainly for Africa. It is a longitudinal data set. We have complete demographic and genealogical data available, so we can link up children with their parents, grandparents, siblings, and so on. This is one of the demographic recorders in one of the villages. I'm not sure you can see that very well, but this is the book that actually records all births and deaths, and the Medical Research Council have been um, collecting this data in these villages since 1950, and now have a very um, unusual and very good record of uh, the democracy's Particular villages. So um, I looked at the effect of these relatives on child survival. So, did the presence of each of these relatives have any impact on child survival rates? And maternal grandmothers do have a significant impact on child survival rates. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can see that at all. I don't think the red line has come out, I'm afraid. Um, This is the Kaplan-Meier plot showing the proportion of children surviving over the first five years of age according to whether their maternal grandmother is alive or whether she's dead. Now, if you could see the red line, the red line would be below the green line, which shows that children without maternal grandmothers have lower survival rates than those who still have living maternal grandmothers. And if you could see that uh, red line, you would also notice that the effect really seems to kick in um, during the second year of life. So up until the second year of life, the two lines are very similar, then the light lines diverge at about the age of weaning. So that it's only after the age of weaning that maternal grandmothers appear to be improving the survival rates of these children. And We know from ethnographic data in this population that maternal grandmothers have an important role to play around the time of weaning. They, um, when women want to wean a baby, they send the child away from their household in order so that the child will forget the breast, so that the child won't be um, continually harassing the mother to breastfeed. If the woman's own mother is still alive, then the child is sent to the woman's own mother, the child's maternal grandmother, during this period. Um, And the child will stay with the maternal grandmother for a few weeks or even a few months. And the grandmother is supposed to do things like prepare peanut mashes for the child, which is a very high energy form of food. Uh, So this empirical evidence, together with the ethnographic evidence, suggests that this care that maternal grandmothers is doing is of sufficiently high quality to actually improve the survival rates of these children. Just a shame you can't actually see those lines, but that's what the uh, the plot should be showing. Okay, you're not going to be able to see any of the red on any of these slides, unfortunately. (laughs) So this slide summarises all of the empirical analysis that I did on child survival. So the two relatives that do improve child survival are, first of all, maternal grandmothers, and secondly, elder sisters of the child. This effect was only seen in later childhood. so children over the age of um, two years old, or between the ages of two and five, their survival was improved if they had elder sisters. Not elder brothers, elder brothers make no difference, only elder sisters. The other categories of relative on the slide make no difference at all to child survival, so it didn't seem to matter at all whether the father was there or not, whether he was present or absent. Children had exactly the same survival chances whether or not their father was there or not. Similarly paternal grandmothers and any kind of grandfather or elder brothers had no effect at all on child survival rates. So to conclude in The Gambia, who matters for child survival in The Gambia? Well, it seems to be female kin on the mother's side, so the mother's own mother, the maternal grandmother of the child, and elder sisters of the child. Nobody else seems to matter, no male kin and the father's relative, so the father's mother doesn't seem to matter either for child survival. So that was, um, I think that's quite an interesting result, but it is a result only in a single society. The human species is very diverse. We live in all kinds of different environments, we adopt all kinds of different subsistence strategies. And um, To find these results in a single society is interesting of itself, but you can't say very much about the entire human species from the study of a single society. If you want to really understand if humans are adopting this cooperative breeding strategy, then you need to look at studies in other populations. If studies in other populations are coming up with similar results, then you're on safer ground to conclude that this seems to be a fairly common pattern, that women do receive help from other relatives in raising children. So after that um, case study in the Gambia, I looked to see if similar results could be seen in other populations. By reviewing um, all of those studies which have been published on the impact of kin on child survival. And I found 35 studies which had looked at the impact of at least one relative on um, child survival rates. Um, these are the relatives that I looked for. Again, it's pretty much the same list that I looked for in the Gambia. These 35 studies, very few of them looked at the effects of all of these relatives, but all 35 studies had looked at the effect of at least one relative on child survival. I also found 30 studies which have looked at the impact of mothers on child survival. I'll say more about that in a moment. Now all of these populations are high fertility, high mortality populations. Of necessity they have to be high mortality populations in order for there to be sufficient variance in child survival for me to be able to do this kind of analysis. <coughs> But they do come from quite a wide geographical range. So there are societies from historical Europe and historical Asia in there, from uh, contemporary Africa and from contemporary South America. Most populations are agricultural. There were, I think, three hunter gatherer populations in there. Some of the longitudinal datasets also came from studies, uh, populations which were moving through the demographic transition, so some of them may have been becoming incorporated into a market economy in the later stages of the study, but most of them were largely agricultural populations. Um, the next few slides show you the tables that um, I've um, created from these studies, you're probably not going to be able to read these slides very well. Um, This is a published paper, so if you want to actually go and look uh, at these uh, tables in more detail, um, this is a a published paper, which is available on my website. Um, But I just want you to briefly briefly show you um, these tables, which display the data coming out of these 35 studies. If you can read the first column here, you'll get an um, indication of the kinds of studies that were included in this um, review. If you look at these columns in the middle here, these show the effects of various relatives on child survival. A plus means the presence of that relative improved child survival. None means the presence of that relative had no effect on child survival. And a minus means that relative actually increased child mortality, so decreased child survival. One thing you can take from this slide is that there are quite a lot of pluses on that slide. It does seem like and um, quite a lot of these studies did find evidence of certain relatives improving child survival rates. Now, uh, that's just that... Uh, same table continued. Now I did divide up these 35 studies into two groups, trying to get uh, trying to roughly divide them up into um, studies of different quality. So these studies here are studies which didn't do any kind of multivariate statistics. It was just a univariate correlation between the presence of kin um, and child survival. Most of the studies, the ones I showed you on the previous two slides, were those that had done some kind of slightly more sophisticated statistical analysis. There are a number of potential Um, problems with doing this kind of study. There are a number of confounding factors which could influence um, a simple correlation between the presence of kin and child survival. So roughly speaking, I'm trying to divide these studies up according to their quality. Having said that, um, all of these summary tables I'm going to show you, the summary graphs I'm going to show you, lump all of the studies together with no um, consideration for whether they were univariate or multivariate studies. Okay, so hopefully, this slide, the next few slides I'm going to show you, should um, summarize the results of um, the review much better than the tables I've just showed you. So, what these graphs show are the percentage of studies in which the presence of that relative had a positive effect on child survival, that's the green, Um, a negative effect on child survival, that's the dark bars, which are actually red here, or no effect at all on child survival, which are the blue bars. So green means that the presence of that relative improved child survival, red means the presence of that relative decreased child survival. Um, The sample sizes are at the top there. Now to look at mothers, first of all, Every single one of the 30 studies which had looked at the effect of mothers on child survival found that the presence of mothers improved child survival rates. Now, that didn't surprise me in the least. I was fully expecting to find that result. Why I looked at the, presence, the effect of the presence of mothers on child survival was because I wanted to know if it was possible for children to survive the death of the mother or the loss of the mother, and also at what age children became able to survive the loss of the mother. And what I found was that it is quite possible to survive the loss of your mother if you lose your mother when you're very young. So during the first year of life, if you lose your mother in these kinds of societies, you have almost no chance of survival. However, if you're a little bit older when you lose your mother, you do have a much better chance of surviving. In fact, of those studies which had looked at the timing of the mother effect, fully half of them found that the effect of the mother disappears after the child reaches two years of age. That means that once the child is two years of age, it doesn't seem to matter whether the mother is there or not. The the child um, survives just as well as if the mother is uh, absent. That is quite surprising because two-year-old children are not independent. They cannot feed themselves, they cannot look after themselves. Two-year-old children who lose their mothers must be cared for by somebody else, so some other relative must be stepping in to help those children out. So that in itself suggests that there must be some kind of cooperative child-rearing going on in these societies. And what the rest of the analysis um, tries to show is who that relative might be, who is helping mothers uh, out in raising children. Okay, secondly on the screen is the effect of fathers. Fathers, as in the Gambia, don't seem to matter that much. In only about a third of the populations studied, did the effect of fathers have any influence on child survival. So in only about a third of studies, did the loss of the father increase child mortality rates. In about two thirds of cases, it simply made no difference to the child whether the father was there or not. There was even one study that found that girl children survived better in the absence of the father. So in Ethiopia, female children seem to survive better if they don't have their fathers around. Um, So in only nine of the 24 studies, did the presence of the father actually improve child survival? Mostly the father really didn't seem to have much effect at all. Again, as in the Gambia, grandmothers seem to be seem to have a much more positive effect on child survival, particularly maternal grandmothers. In about 70% of cases, the maternal grandmother improved child survival. In about half of cases, the presence of the paternal grandmother improved child survival. So, Grandmothers seem to be a better bet in terms of who is that relative helping mothers care for children, particularly maternal grandmothers. Although, if you... Look at that slide again. There were a couple of cases where, again, the presence of grandmothers did increase child mortality rates. So grandmothers are not always beneficial. Sometimes they may even be detrimental to the child. Grandfathers don't seem to have very much effect at all, um, somewhat like fathers. Maternal grandfathers really seem to have very little effect at all. With paternal grandfathers, um, in half of cases they did have an impact, but that impact was evenly split between a positive and negative impact on children. So in several cases the presence of the paternal grandfather again increased child mortality rates. But these effects of paternal grandfathers, even when they were there, they weren't particularly strong. They tended to be seen only for children of one sex or for older children. So the effect of grandfathers on the whole was relatively weak. However, again, um, as in the Gambia, elder siblings do seem to have a positive impact on child survival where their effect has been looked for. Now the sample size um, of those studies is extremely small. I could only find six studies which looked at the effect of potential helpers at the nest on child survival. These are not all um, older sibs here. These are only older siblings of the child who could potentially be helpers. So these are children who are at least five years older than the child, sometimes 10 years older than the child. The reason I restricted the analysis to those older children is that relationships between siblings can be competitive as well as cooperative. Um, Siblings, particularly those closely spaced in age, tend to compete for their parents' resources. So I did restrict this analysis only to children who were old enough to be uh, hopefully not in too much competition with with the index child, but potentially cooperative. Mm -hmm. And in those very small number of cases, um, elder siblings did seem to be very often positive. They did seem to have a positive effect on child survival. There were very few studies that had looked at the effect of other relatives, like aunts and uncles, but the effects were were very mixed. It's hard to come to any conclusions there, because there were so few studies. So, To conclude, in these pre-demographic transition societies, women do seem to be receiving help in raising offspring. Something I should have said is that in pretty much every single study that has been done on the effects of kin on child survival, at least one relative apart from the mother does have a significant impact on child survival rates. Again, suggesting that women are receiving help from other relatives in raising their children. Who helps does vary, however. Sometimes it's fathers, more often it's grandmothers, sometimes it's the maternal grandmother, sometimes it's the paternal grandmother. Um, It's probably going to be a very flexible strategy, so women will look to see who they have available to them um, in terms of um, residence patterns or or who is available to help them care for children um, in order to um, find help in raising children. So it looks like from this uh, review at least women are cooperatively breeding, but they are using help from a number of different sources depending on who's available. I should say that these are all pre-demographic transition societies because that's where my research has focused but Um, I recently co-authored a a workshop paper with David Cole who works on post-demographic transition societies and the impact of grandparents specifically on child outcomes and he finds that in modern societies, modern developed societies as well, grandparents do seem to have an impact on child outcomes. You can't look at child survival rates in developed societies because children don't really die anymore, but you can look at other child um, outcomes such as their uh, psychological development or, or a range of other different outcomes. There isn't actually very much research on the effect of grandparents on child outcomes in developed societies, but what there is again suggests that grandparents do matter um, for children's outcomes, positive outcomes. Okay, so the last part of the talk will be um, some work I'm doing at the moment, reviewing the literature on the impact of kin on female fertility rates. Now, I also looked at the impact of kin on female fertility rates in The Gambia, but I didn't mention that um, for, um, because of time constraints. So I'm just going to talk here about the review I'm doing at the moment, um, again, reviewing all of those studies, published studies, which have looked at the impact of kin on female fertility rates. Now, if women are receiving help in raising children, this could have an impact on their fertility rates um, in a couple of ways. For one thing, the practical support that women receive in raising children could affect their fertility rates. So if kin are helping care for children, this relieves some of the energetic burden on women which means that they might have relatively short interbirth intervals because um, in poorly nourished societies at least women will begin ovulating again sooner after the birth of the previous child if they are not expending a lot of energy caring for their existing child. But also the perception of this support may influence fertility decisions. So if women know that they can rely on this network of support from their own mothers um, and elder siblings and so on, this may encourage them to have um, children at relatively short interbirth intervals and also to have a relatively large number of children. So this practical support um, may influence fertility rates. As well as practical support, it may be that your kin are exerting social influences on you in order to um, influence your childbearing. A psychologist called Leslie Newson has been doing some work on this recently. She's done some lab experiments which suggest that um, kin are relatively pronatal in contrast to non-kin who are less pronatal. Um, essentially your kin encourage you to have children at least under good conditions for raising children. Um, people who are not related to you um, are much less pronatal. They will be less encouraging you to have children. So there could be these two potential pathways of influence. Um, kin may be affecting women's fertility rates partly through his practical support, but also because of social influence, um, encouraging, encouraging them to have children um, at the right time anyway. So what I'm doing at the moment is again reviewing all of the studies that have been published on the effects of kin um, on fertility rates. and This is actually a systematic review. Um, the systematic review process has been developed recently in order to introduce rigour into the review process. Um, it's been developed quite a lot by a group at the Institute of Education in London um, and they have developed this uh, piece of software called EpiReviewer which allows you to manage the review process. I'm not sure I want to spend too much time talking about the details of the systematic review. Um, essentially, um, a systematic review is... Um, Pretty much the same as a normal review, but it's more systematic because at each stage you have uh, a clear list of exactly what you're doing so that somebody can go back and replicate um, your methods. Uh, The point of a normal review is that it's, it's not necessarily that replicable which good science should be. Um, and what the uh, systematic review does, certainly this uh, EP review software, is that it allows you to manage the review and make each of the stages in your review very explicit so that somebody else can repeat what you're doing if they should want to, to check on your results. But without going into too much detail on that, We have done a systematic review of the effects of kin on female fertility, and what we've come up with is a corpus of 85 papers, 85 studies, which have looked at the effects of kin on fertility rates. Um, I've pulled out from that review some of the statistics on these studies. It's a larger number of studies than looked at the effects of kin on child survival. Um, So the next couple of slides just summarise the statistics on these 85 studies. Those are the disciplines that they come from. Um, Fairly diverse group of disciplines, not surprisingly, um, most of them come from demography, but by no means all. As with the child mortality study, um, it's quite a geographically diverse sample, um, coming from all corners of the world, essentially. Again, it includes some historical studies as well as some contemporary studies. Unlike the Child Survival Review, it includes both low and high fertility societies. So you can look at the impact of kin in any kind of society where women are having children, which means you can look at it in at low fertility societies and high fertility societies and the the studies are about evenly split between those um, studies that are in low fertility uh, societies, which we've arbitrarily defined as less than three children, and about half come from those in high fertility societies. So a large proportion of them do come from modern developed societies, but we also have a substantial minority from more traditional societies, so this is a much wider mix of societies than were in the child survival review. It's... um, much harder to do this kind of review because the outcomes are more varied. Uh, the fertility outcomes that we've included here include things like age at first birth. There's also quite a lot of work on teenage pregnancy, um, particularly in the developed world. Uh, Some of the outcomes we've included are length of birth intervals and also also the total number of births. So the, um, the outcomes here are much more diverse than they were for the child survival study where the outcome was simply child survival. A couple of studies were also on fertility preferences, but the vast majority were actually on actual fertility outcomes. Um, From that slide, I should perhaps say that there were quite large bodies of literature that we excluded. So, for example, there's quite a lot of work out there on intergenerational transmission of fertility. So if you come from a large family, does that mean you also have a large family? We've excluded any of that kind of literature because it doesn't quite fit into what we're looking at. We've also excluded any studies on male fertility, so this is uh, specifically the impact of kin on female fertility. As well as having a number of different fertility outcomes, the way kin was defined in these studies also varies quite a lot. Some studies did look at the presence of named relatives on female fertility, so exactly what the, the, kin, uh, sorry, the child survival review did, uh, looking for the impact of named relatives on child survival. Some of these kin studies again looked at the presence of named relatives on female fertility, but quite a lot of them used um, a broader indication of kin presence. So there's quite a bit of work in the literature about whether living in an extended versus a nuclear family influences women's fertility. What an extended family usually means is living in a husband's kin. Most societies, uh, human societies worldwide, are patrilocal. That means that the woman moves to live with her husband's family when she gets married. So most of this work looking at the effects of extended versus nuclear family is looking at the effect of living with the husband's kin versus living just with your husband. In the developed world, a lot of the literature looks at parental disruption, so looking at whether girls who come from an intact family versus one in which the parents have divorced, whether that influences particularly her age at first birth and whether she becomes a teenage mother. Roughly speaking, parental disruption means the absence of the father, but it doesn't always mean that. Sometimes it's the absence of the mother. A handful of studies looked at whether women's contact with her natal kin, her own kin, had any influence on female fertility. But in general, as well as the fertility outcomes being more varied, the way kin were defined in these studies also varied quite a lot. So I'm going to show you a couple of um, graphs again showing the results of uh, this review. First of all, looking at the non-specific measures of kin. Again, what these columns show is the proportion of studies in which the presence of that particular relative had either a pronatal effect on fertility, which are the dark purple bars. Pronatal means um, either the woman had an earlier first birth, she had shorter birth intervals, or she had a higher total number of children. The lighter purple bar show the proportion of studies in which the presence of that kin had an antenatal effect. That is, they delayed first birth, they lengthened birth intervals, or they reduced the number of children a woman had. And the yellow bars are the proportion of studies where those kin had no effect at all. And looking first at non-specific measures of kin, if you look at the extended family, they do have an effect in about half of cases, and mostly that effect is pronatal. So living with your husband's kin seems to speed up your fertility rate. Contact with your natal kin doesn't seem to do that. If anything, contact with your natal kin slows down your fertility rate. And again, if you look at the intact versus parental disruption studies, uh, coming from an intact family means it delays your first birth. It slows down your reproductive rate. So effectively, the presence of the father, roughly speaking, delays your first birth. It reduces your fertility rate. I'm not going to talk about the other, I think, studies at the moment. Again, the sample sizes are at the bottom of the screen, so we're not talking about huge sample sizes for any of these groups. Okay, looking at specific measures of kin, first of all, parents and parents-in-law. Some of these studies did look at the effect of the mother and father separately. Some just lumped parents or parents-in-law in together, so that's what the, um, uh, the columns are showing here. Again, if you look at the specific measures of kin, parents-in-law seem to be pronatal. They seem to be speeding up your fertility rates. Your own parents are sometimes pronatal sometimes antenatal. But again, there's quite a lot of evidence that kin are influencing women's fertility rates. Again, in about half of the studies, roughly speaking, uh, for all categories of kin, on average, there is an effect of the presence of these relatives on women's fertility rates. Okay, so the first two columns here just summarise the previous slide. They show that your own parents are sometimes pro, sometimes anti-natal, sometimes speed up your fertility rate, sometimes slow it down, whereas your parents-in-law, your husband's kin, tend to speed up your fertility rates. There were also a handful of studies that have looked at the effects of elder children on your fertility rates and your own siblings on your fertility rate. Again, the effect is a little bit mixed. It's often pronatal, it's sometimes antenatal. But often there is some kind of effect of these relatives on female fertility rates. Now, I should say this is work I'm doing at the moment, so these are very tentative conclusions. Oops. So these are the conclusions that I draw at the moment from this review of the effects of kin on female fertility rates. Again, there's quite a lot of evidence that kin do matter, that kin do affect your fertility rates. But again, there's quite a lot of variation between societies. Sometimes kin are pronatal, sometimes they're antenatal, sometimes they have no effect at all. If any conclusion can be drawn tentatively from this review, it's that parents-in-law seem to be much more likely to be pronatal than your own parents. Your own parents sometimes speed up your fertility rate, sometimes slow it down. And if you look at um, how this varies by different types of society, what you see is that parents in all pretty much always seem to be pronatal. But if you look at your own parents, in traditional societies, they're quite often pronatal, that is high fertility societies, but in developed societies, they're more often antenatal. Specifically, the presence of your father seems to slow down your fertility rate. This illustrates one of the problems of um, doing this review on female fertility. Um, I've simply divided these studies into whether they're pro the relatives are pro or antenatal, without making any kind of value judgment about whether pro or antenatal um, effects are a good or a bad thing. The antenatal effects that fathers have in developed societies, are probably trying to delay their daughter's birth until it is a good time for them to have a birth. Having a teenage pregnancy in a modern developed society, certainly the government will tell you, is not necessarily a good thing because it affects that uh, woman's education and has all kinds of other consequences. So these what I've described as antenatal effects may in fact be effects of your parents trying to delay your births until they are at the right time, and they are a good at, um, until they're at a good time for you to have children. So the analysis of kin and fertility outcomes is very much more complicated than analysing the effects of kin on child survival. Um, Those graphs I've showed you also do gloss over an awful lot of variation in those studies. Um, They include many different kinds of fertility outcomes. The way kin is defined varies quite a lot between societies. Um, It is very much more complicated to do this analysis than it is to do the child survival analysis. But overall, I think both reviews do show that family matters to women when they're raising children. Kin do seem to have significant influences on both child survival and female fertility rates, but this influence is quite variable. Who counts does matter quite a lot between different societies. I'd just like to thank my co-authors for some of this work, um, and also the review Group working on the review of kin and fertility. Um, it's been quite a labor intensive exercise, the systematic review, um, so I've had quite a lot of help with that. So, thank you. Thank you.